When I was a child, one of my favorite days of the year came always sometime around December 1st. And I never knew exactly what day it would be, but, but as the trees grew more and more bare and, and as the days grew more and more shorter, one day my dad would come home from work and he would say, it is time. It is time to go and get the Christmas tree. And so we would all get in the family SUV and we would drive out to some parking lot in the suburbs and, and we would look at all the trees and we would turn them all around 360 degrees. And we, were, we would pretend like we were experts on Christmas trees and knew, for example, what made a, a blue spruce better than a Fraser fir or whatever. Until eventually there was that moment where we would see the one tree shining more than all the rest and then you knew that that was the one. And so then, of course, uh, the night was not complete until the tree was decorated. And, and so while we sipped hot chocolate and listened to Christmas music for the first time each year, we, we would cover the tree with lights and, and decorate the tree with ornaments and, and top the tree with a star. And it was a sight to behold. But uh, the Christmas tree, just like every Christmas tree, was dying. And in five weeks, if not sooner, it would be completely dead. And friends, it strikes me as I think about our world, as I think even about UT, the college campus I'm at, we spend our days and our lives doing something similar. We dress ourselves. We, we cover ourselves with accomplishments to try to prove to the world that we matter, uh, that we are beautiful and successful and important people on the outside, even if on the inside we are dying. And this morning in John 15, we see Jesus inviting us into a very different kind of life, in fact, the opposite kind of life, in which at times on the outside, it may look as if we are dying, but on the inside, we are actually alive. So three points this morning as we look at a fruitful life. First of all, what fruit is? Second, how fruit forms? And third, why fruit matters? So first of all, what fruit is? So if you look back at the text, you'll see over and over again the repetition of this phrase, bear fruit, bear fruit. I mean, Jesus, we see, is inviting his disciples to do exactly that, to bear fruit and, and to live fruitful lives in this world. And I want to ask you, when, when you hear the phrase, a fruitful life, what comes into your mind? Uh, in his book, You Are Not Your Own, the professor Alan Noble argues that, that in spite of all the division in our modern world, there's one agreed-upon value that we all share, and it is efficiency and productivity. Everyone agrees with it, which is amazing when you think about, again, all the division. But I, and I really do believe that for most of us, when we think about fruit, I mean, this is what we think about. And we have some vision for how we want our life to go, and, and we want to maximize that vision and be as efficient and productive as possible and, and sort of get the most out of life. I mean, for others of us, when we hear fruitful, we think successful, I hear college students use that word, I want to be successful. What does that mean? Uh, we, we think about making money and, and turning a profit or, or being seen and recognized by the world. Well, many of you know the Catholic writer Henry Nouwen, who was a professor at Notre Dame and later Harvard Divinity School, but, but left those, those halls of power and prestige to go and spend his life among the physically and the intellectually disabled. And, and, and as he spent more and more time among the disabled, he, here's what Nowen learned. He learned that the disabled do not get things done. 
I mean, they're not productive, uh, they are not efficient or, or useful or successful in the eyes of the world, and, and yet they are fruitful. And so reflecting on John 15, here's what Nowen wrote. He said, the call to be fruitful here does not necessarily mean the call to be productive. The call to be fruitful does not necessarily mean the call to be productive. I mean, in his call to bear fruit, Jesus never once talks about efficiency or productivity. So what does he talk about? I mean, what is a fruitful life for our Lord? Well, first of all, we see in our passage that for him, fruit is obedience. Uh, Look at verse 10. Uh, If you keep my commands, then you will abide in my love. If, If you keep my commands... Fruit for Jesus is obedience. And so what is obedience? Well, as you know, obedience, it is more than than doing the right thing or some sort of external behavior. And parents, you know this. I mean, your child can obey you and do the right thing but not really be obedient in the process. And so obedience is something deeper. I mean, ultimately, obeying God is believing that God's commands are good and that his ways and his paths are good, ultimately because he is good. And and, and true obedience in the scriptures is actually following God, even and especially when we we do not understand him, and his plans seem to run against the plans that we have made for our life. And and a life of obedience and obeying God in this world is not flashy. And in fact, many times it's not efficient or productive, and it can feel like one step forward and two steps back, and yet obedience is fruit. But we see in our passage the second and greatest mark of a fruitful life is love. And we see this in verse 12 where Jesus says, love one another as I have loved you. And it's important to remember here the context of our passage, that that Jesus' words here take place on Thursday night, the night before he will go to the cross and die. And so his word to the disciples over and over again on Thursday night is love. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Abide in my love. And how does Jesus love on that night? I mean, his definition of love and loving like him is very specific. Um, Because on that night, he knelt down on the ground and he bowed himself before others, even Judas, and, and, and he washed feet. I mean, for Jesus, love is this very hidden, sacrificial thing. And once again, love is not efficient, and it's not productive. I mean, think about elsewhere in the Gospels when, when the woman breaks the alabaster jar to, to anoint Jesus' feet, and the disciples, as we would be, are outraged. Why? Because he or she has wasted this, this wonderful, beautiful, expensive jar. But love is always wasteful. I mean, love is prodigal. Uh, it, it is hidden and unnoticed. It, it is washing feet with Jesus in the upper room, away from the eyes of the world. And again, it's not flashy, but, but it is fruit. 
And to me, uh, no one captures the beauty of this sort of life, uh, this life of hidden and sacrificial love, more than the filmmaker Terrence Malick. Terrence Malick, who lives actually here in Austin. Although you'll never see him, he's kind of a hermit. So, uh, but Terrence Malick, um, his masterpiece is a movie called The Tree of Life. And many of you have probably seen this movie, The Tree of Life. And interestingly, it was actually the last movie that Roger Ebert, the famous film critic, reviewed before he died. But uh, Tree of Life, it, it's about a mom and a dad and, and their three boys growing up in Waco in the 1950s. And the movie is this juxtaposition uh, between the mom and the dad. And the mom is played by Jessica Chastain. And, and she is this woman of love and, and tenderness and, and grace and sacrifice. But the dad, who's played by Brad Pitt, is this man of law and, and order that is really rooted in a lot of insecurity and bitterness that he has. And, and near the end of the movie, the family is moving out of their house in Waco, uh, the house in which they have raised their boys all of those years. And, and Jessica Chastain is in the car, and she is looking out the window, and she is seeing the house fading in the distance. And you can see in her face that she is reminiscing upon all of her years as a mother in, in that home and all of her many unseen labors, right? I mean, the, the breakfast she has made and, and the baths that, that she has drawn and, and the tears that she has cried. And this is what she says to us as she stares out the window. The only way to be happy is to love. And unless you love, your life will flash by. Not were you successful, but did you love? And not were you productive, but did you love? And not were you wealthy or, or recognized or applauded, but did you love? And so that's point one. Uh, for Jesus, on Thursday night, the night before he dies, he says a fruitful life is obedience and is love. So we need to ask then, how do we become these sorts of people? And that's point two, how fruit forms. How fruit forms. So when we hear this call to, to obey and to love and to bear fruit, I mean, we nod our heads, but immediately I think something ironic happens. And that is that in our desire to become loving and more obedient people, we once more fall back into the trap of efficiency and productivity. Because we immediately think that uh, we need to come up with, with these spiritual plans or, or these spiritual strategies for, for improving ourselves and becoming better people. But Jesus does not offer a single strategy in John 15. I mean, we want some sort of spiritual control, and he will not give it to us. Instead, he says that fruit is formed by him in us in two ways. First, by abiding. Abiding. Turning back to the text, I want you to notice how many times Jesus says, Abide and I've counted them for you, it is 10 times in 11 verses. 10 times in 11 verses. Abide. So what does it mean to abide? Well, abide comes from, from the same root as abode, and that is helpful, because you know what an abode is. It, it is a home. And so as one commentator says, to abide with Jesus is to make your home with him. It is to make your home with him. It is to make Jesus your, your dwelling place, your refuge. It is to stay near him and to remain connected to him. When I was in high school, one summer morning, I woke up and the whole room was spinning. 
and that is never a good way to start your day. So we went immediately to the doctor and they said, well, uh, how much water have you been drinking? And I said, I don't know, I'm in high school, we don't like do water really, we drink like Coke or whatever. So they said, well, um, you're severely dehydrated and we need to immediately hook you up to an IV. And, and so we went to the hospital and they hooked me up to an IV and this was the first time I'd ever had an IV and y'all, it was amazing. I mean, I, I, as, as I get the IV, I, I can feel the, the hydration coursing through my body and, and returning literally physically to me. And I think about that image to say that, that, that abiding with Jesus really is like hooking yourself up to an IV. I mean, it, it is recognizing that we on our own cannot create life for ourselves. But Christ is our life. And, and, and that without him, we will wither and we will dry up. But connected to him, we can live. And so abiding really is, we see here, this radical dependence upon Jesus. And we see this especially in verse 6, where Jesus says, and this is maybe my favorite verse in the Bible, apart from me, you can do nothing. <laughs> Think about this verse. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Here's what Jesus means here. Apart from me, you can do nothing. That is what he means. And so this morning, do you want to become a Christian? Apart from me, you can do nothing. Do you want to grow as a Christian? Apart from me, you can do nothing. I mean, do you want to heal from a sin in your life, an addiction in your life? I mean, apart from me, you can do nothing. Do you want to be a better parent? Apart from me, you can do nothing. Do you want to save your marriage? Apart from me, you can do nothing. And yet many of us, even Christians, we do not believe a word of this. We think, yes, I, I, I'm saved by grace. God does it all. Apart from Christ, I can do nothing. Got it. But then the second we're saved, we think it's now time for me to get to work. And I need to change myself and improve myself and grow myself. But Jesus says, no. Fruit is something that I work in you. All you need to do is hook yourself up to the IV. And so you might ask, how do I do that? How do I abide? And we'll just continue on through the service, and I'll let you use your imagination thinking about wine in terms of one way. You can immediately, even today, hook yourself back up to the IV. Uh, but moving on, we see, do see a second way, not only abiding, but a second way, and it's a less fun way that God forms fruit in our life, and, and it is suffering. It is suffering. And what is wonderful about God is that even when we fail to abide and fail to love and fail to obey, he makes us. And we see this too in our passage. Every branch that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. And I've been thinking about pruning this summer because uh, all of my plants are dying, as yours probably are too. But if you watch someone prune a plant, it looks like they are killing it. And when you're in the middle of suffering, it really does feel like you're dying. And some of you feel that way this morning. But pruning, of course, is actually a way that the gardener brings the plant back to life. I mean, by cutting back all that has died so that life can return. And in the end, it is only suffering that can make us actually abide in the vine. Left to ourselves, we won't do it. We will not stay connected to Jesus. We will once more rely on ourselves and run and do our own thing. Only suffering can make us believe that apart 
from Jesus, we can do nothing. And only suffering can actually make us loving and obedient people. And it is really important that we become these types of people. So now that we've seen how fruit forms and and what fruit is, as we close, I I want us to consider the purpose of fruit and and why fruit and the fruitful life matters so much for us, okay? So looking back at the text, we we begin to see the purpose of fruit in verse 1, where Jesus says to us, I'm the true vine. I'm the true vine. Why does he say this? Well, if you read the scriptures, you'll see that, that vineyards and vines and wine really is one of the great themes of the Bible. And in the Old Testament, God forms this people, Israel, and over and over again, what does he call Israel? A vineyard. And we see this especially in the Isaiah 5 passage, which is printed for you. Look at verse 7. The vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. So why a vineyard? I mean, I mean, why this image for describing Israel? Well, what was Israel called to do? I mean, they were called to bear fruit. They were called to, to like a vine, stretch out in, into all the world and, and display God's love and his goodness so that the world and so that the nations might come and taste God's love and his goodness. But over and over again, the Old Testament, Israel failed at this, right? I mean, look again at Isaiah where it says, God looked for them to display justice, but behold, bloodshed. And he looked for them to be righteous, but, but behold, an outcry. And so I believe that, that Jesus really does have this passage in his mind when he comes to the disciples the night before his death, and he says, I'm the true vine. Because what he is saying is he is saying, I'm the true Israel. He's saying, I'm the one who has finally done what, what Israel could not do. I'm the one who will finally, tomorrow on the cross, show justice and righteousness and love and obedience to the world. And so what Jesus is doing here in John 15, with with, with all this imagery of vine and branch and fruit, is he is forming a new vineyard. And that vineyard is you and I. He is forming this new Israel, this church. He is forming a people once more call, called to bear fruit and to stretch out into all the world and to display the fruit of God's love so that the world might come and taste of God's love. And friends, if you follow this line of imagery in the Bible, we see that our world really was made to be drunk upon the love and the mercy and the grace of Jesus. And we are meant to give it to them and to bring it to them. That is our purpose. Let's wrap up. Many of you know and love uh, C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce. And if you've read that story, you'll remember that the story is about this narrator who, who is led by his guide, George MacDonald, through heaven and hell and all in between in, in order to witness and to watch all of these different people who, who have passed away and now live either in, in eternal happiness and glory or, or else in eternal sadness and pain and anguish. And he has all these visions, but near the end of the book, he has this final vision, and it is of a great parade, of a parade that passes by him, this parade of men and women and girls and boys and animals and music. And we're told in the story that this parade is being held in honor of a lady. 
And the narrator begins to wonder uh, who this lady could be. I mean, who, what woman could be so great as to be, be uh, worthy of such a parade? And so he asks George, uh, is, is this parade for Mary? Is it for Jesus' mother? Uh, because who else could be so great a woman? So he whispers to George again, is, is it Mary? But, but George says, no, it is not for Mary. You will have never heard of this woman her name on earth was Sarah Smith, and she lived at Golders Green. I mean, Sarah Smith, can, can you think of a more ordinary name? Or Golders Green, which, which is a forgettable backwaters neighborhood in London. And yet George says, Sarah is one of the great ones. Because as you know, fame in this country and fame on earth are two very different things. And so then the narrator b- begins to ask George, so, so who are all these people? Who are all these people throwing a parade for her? I mean, who are the, these, these men and women and boys and girls and animals? And George tells him that they are all the people that Sarah had loved. That it wasn't that she herself was famous or had a large family of her own or owned a lot of animals herself, but it was this. Every young man or boy that met her became her son, even if it was only that boy that brought the meat to her back door. And every girl that met her was her daughter, and every beast and bird that came near her had its place in her love, and in her they became themselves. And now the abundance of life that she has in Christ from the Father flows over into them. And friends, that is our passage you were all made to be Sarah Smith, a, a small and insignificant branch, but great because you were attached to the vine. You were called to live, live a small and hidden life in which the life of Christ flows through you out into the world so that others might come and taste his love and his goodness. Sarah Smith, Golders Green, that is the fruitful life. Let's pray. Lord Christ, you are the true vine, and apart from you, we can do nothing. So, Father, we do ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you might fill us with your life this morning, that we, a small branch in your vineyard, might bear your fruit into our neighborhoods and into our city and into our world. We ask these things in your Son's name. Amen.